0: Good morning. morning. Um, Great to be here with you guys. As always, uh, a blessing to gather together to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, this morning we are going to continue through our study of the Gospel of Luke. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, would you please open it up to Luke chapter 20. Luke Chapter twenty. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, feel free to reach down and borrow one of the Bibles that are placed under some of the chairs around you. I do believe it's very important for us all to be able to follow along in the Word as we go through it, uh, verse by verse. And we're going to be doing a little bit of jumping around uh, this morning as well. So, it'd be good just to have uh, a Bible with you. So. Also, uh, just as a reminder, at the close of our time together, we are going to set aside a few minutes to come to the Lord's table, remembering what He did for us through the observation uh, of uh, communion. Uh, This is something that we as a church do periodically, usually the first Sunday of each month. It's important that we always remember what Christ did for us, laying down His life for us and establishing a new covenant that resulted in grace being poured out upon us, and so uh, we've got a lot to get through uh, this morning, so we'll go ahead and get going. We've been in the Gospel of Luke for quite some time now. I actually uh, looked it up. We began our study, I couldn't believe it, back in April of 2021, Uh, and we probably won't finish uh, until early next year, but in my defense, if you think, wow, that's a long time to be in one book, it is the largest of the four Gospel accounts, and in fact, it is the largest book in the New Testament. And so, you know, I think I'm a little justified that it's taken us a little bit of time uh, to go through it. The Gospel of Luke is broken up into four major parts. We've tackled most of them already. Uh, The first part of the Gospel focused upon the introduction of Jesus as the Son of Man. That was in chapters 1 through 4. The second part highlighted the ministry of the Son of Man. That was chapters 4 through 9. And then the third part dealt with the rejection of the Son of Man. Uh, And that was from the end of chapter 9 all the way through to halfway of chapter 19. And the fourth and final part from chapter 19 through to the end of the book centers upon the crucifixion and resurrection of the Son of Man. And it highlights for us Jesus' final week in Jerusalem leading up to the cross where he would lay down his life for The sins of all humanity. Now, two weeks ago, we started the fourth and final major portion of Luke's Gospel. The first part of the Gospel, uh, or excuse me, the the final part of the Gospel uh, began with the account of Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem on the first day of the week. It's a Sunday. Traditionally, we call that Palm Sunday because it was the first day of the week, a Sunday, when Jesus entered in to the city of Jerusalem. We covered that in detail two weeks ago. And then last week, we looked at some of the events that took place on Monday and early Tuesday of that fateful week. We covered the cleansing of the temple that occurred on Monday. And then we looked at the questioning of Jesus by the religious authorities, uh, the members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, that wanted to know Two things from Jesus, and it's way of uh, reminder, or in case you weren't with us. Number one, they wanted to know by what authority Jesus did the things that he did, and number two, they wanted to know, to know excuse me, who gave him that authority. Now. Instead of immediately answering the questions of the religious leaders, Jesus proposed a question to them first, stating that he would answer their question if they, in fact, would answer his. And so Jesus asked the religious leaders about the ministry of John the Baptist. He wanted to know if they believed if the baptism of John was from heaven or was it from men. And so the religious leaders, they gathered themselves together, they reasoned amongst themselves. And they came to the understanding that if they said that it was from God, then Jesus would ask them why they didn't believe him. And if they said it was from men, then the people would revolt against them because the people all believed that John the Baptist was a prophet sent by the Lord. And so they answered, we don't know. Or they actually said, we cannot say. Uh, Therefore, Jesus told them in verse 8, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And that's where we left off in our account, and that's where we're going to pick up in our account today. Jesus is still there in Jerusalem. He's still there in the temple area. It's still Tuesday of that week, and Jesus is going to take this opportunity to speak truth to those discerning ears that were listening in on all that was taking place there in the temple. Our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 19, and the title of our message is going to be, The Authority of of Christ. The authority of Christ. We all please rise to your feet in honor of God and His holy word. I'm going to read our text from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, that's fine. Just do your best to follow along in your own Bible. Luke continues his account with the following in chapter 20, verse 9. Then he, speaking of Jesus, began to tell the people this parable a certain man planted a vineyard leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country for a long time now at vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard but the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty handed again he sent another servant and they beat him also treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed and again he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. Then he looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder." And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning and the opportunity just to open up your word. Lord, and I pray as we look at this parable and we unpack it and look to understand it, I pray that you would lead us and guide us. Lord, I pray that your word would just uh, minister to us and um, mold us and shape us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We give you this time of study, and uh, we just ask for your Spirit's uh, presence, continued presence, His leading and guiding in all truth. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen. 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 You may have a seat. Now, for those of you who like to outline our text or, or jot down notes, we're going to break up our text into two major sections. Okay, The first major section is going to deal with a parable concerning the authority of Christ. Okay, A parable concerning the authority of Christ. It's found in verses 9 through 16. And we're going to look at verse 19 in connection to that parable. And then the second major section is going to deal with a prophecy concerning the authority of Christ. And it's found in verses 17 and 18. And so let's go ahead. We're going to jump back into the first major part of our text, dealing with this parable concerning the authority of Christ. And the first thing we want to note are all the details regarding the giving of the parable. And so we'll read again verses 9 through 15 to get the gist of the idea of this parable. It says then he began to tell the people this parable a certain man planted a vineyard leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country for a long time now at vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard but the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed again he sent another servant and they beat him also treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed and again he sent a third and they wounded him and also excuse me, wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vineyarders saw him, they reasoned among themselves saying, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? We're going to stop right there. Okay. Before we get into this parable, okay, I want to first lay some solid groundwork for how to best understand and learn from parables within the scriptures. Sometimes parables can be tricky. This is I think a pretty straightforward one, but I think it's good just to kind of reset some boundaries and and principles that are good for Uh, all sorts of Bible study. Quite simply, we understand that a parable is an earthly story that conveys a heavenly truth. It's a very simple way to think of parables within the scriptures. A parable contains something that the people would easily and readily recognize in the physical realm that would then be used as a picture or a symbol of a truth in the spiritual realm. Now, as we go through a parable, it's important that we keep to the three basic steps of good inductive Bible study, okay, Um, observation, interpretation, application, right? We start with making observations. We read through the parable, and we note all the different elements that are are involved. We're not so concerned right off the bat with the meaning of things, okay? Our main goal is to simply make observations of all the facts that are presented and somewhat just lay them all out. After we've made the different observations, we can then move on to what is the interpretation? What do these, all these facts mean? Okay? A good rule of thumb is to always allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So, we always want to look to the Scriptures and say, hey, does the Scriptures say anything else about this anywhere uh, that we might be able to glean from them? And so, that's why we need to look to what the rest of Scripture has to say, okay? Inter- scripture is always the best interpretation for Scripture, after we've made our observations, we've figured out the meaning of these observations, we then move to application. What does the text mean to the original audience, and how does that apply to us today? All right, And all, as always, whenever doing any sort of Bible study, okay, we need to understand the surrounding context and the setting in which the parable was given. Parables were often given in response to certain situations and events that had just taken place. And the fact that this parable is shared... Also, in Matthew and Mark's gospel, is going to help us in regard to gathering all of the facts uh, regarding this parable from these three different resources. We'll have a very good understanding of what's being uh, talked about. Now, with these basic steps in place, we're going to jump into the parable. We're going to break it down. We're going to make just our observations first. We're going to try and identify all the parts to it. Then we'll go back through it again, all right? Somewhat elementary today, but follow along, okay? We know and understand the immediate context. We just covered last week uh, the previous text where the religious leaders came. They asked questions about Jesus' authority, verses 1 through 8. This parable was given immediately after Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders. Verse 9 tells us that because it says, Then he, Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. So this parable is shared right after Jesus questioned, uh, was questioned about, his authority, where it came from, who gave it to him. And I believe that's important in our understanding of the parable. But before we get to that, let's make some observations. We'll identify the key components here in this parable. The parable the parable begins in verse 9, describing a certain man that planted a vineyard. Okay? Now, The parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark's gospel, if you'd like to look at them, you can, in Matthew 21 and Mark chapter 12, but it also, in those gospels, it tells us a little bit more details about the vineyard uh, that Luke doesn't give to us, how uh, this certain man set a hedge around the vineyard, he dug a wine press in the vineyard, he even built a tower within the vineyard, and and these things um, would help just bring further clarification uh, to the vineyard. Verse 9 also says that the man who planted the vineyard leased it to some vine dressers, and he went into a far country for a long time. This was very typical of how things ran back in the day, and even to some degree still today. Usually the landowners themselves were not farmers, okay, but they would find for themselves tenant farmers to work their fields there would be an agreed-upon contract between them that designated a certain portion of the crop was to be paid as rent, and that at harvest time, the owners would send agents to come collect the agreed-upon amount of produce as rent, and then the workers and the tenant farmers would be able to uh, sell and, and make a living from what was left over. Now, in verses 10 through 12, we're introduced to a number of servants that were sent by the landowner to receive some of the fruit of the vineyard because it was the time of the harvest. It was vintage time. Okay, as we look at the details here, we see that the first servant, he was sent to the vine dressers. He was beaten by them. He was sent away empty-handed. A second servant was then sent, and he too was beaten by the vine dressers and was even treated shamefully, meaning that they did not honor him, but instead they insulted him. They treated him with contempt. Eventually the vine dressers sent him away empty-handed as well. Then we're told of a third servant that was sent, and they wounded him, and they cast him out just like they had done the previous two. Each of the servants were treated horribly by the vine dressers. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is recorded as saying that the vine dressers took the servants and they beat one, they killed one, and they stoned the other. Now, in verses 13 through 15, we're introduced to another main component of this parable, and that's the beloved son of the landowner. Mark's gospel tells us specifically that not only was this son beloved, but he was also the only son of the owner in Mark chapter 12, verse 6. The landowner thought that if he sent his one and only beloved son, that they may respect him and treat him differently than the other servants. But the vine dressers did not respect the beloved son. Instead, they decided to kill the son in hopes that they may receive his inheritance. You see, back then, a piece of land could be possessed lawfully by whoever claimed it first, if it went unclaimed by an heir within a certain period of time. Okay, after a certain amount of time, if the land went unclaimed, well, whoever put first dibs on it basically was able to take it. And this was obviously the intention of the vine dressers. They wanted control over the vineyard, and so they took out the only person that would be able to make a claim against the vineyard. And so those are the basic observations of the text. Very simple, right? Now we want to turn to the interpretation. We want to see what do all these things mean, okay? These are all a picture of something, and so we want to try and identify those things. We're going to go through the text again. We're going to properly identify the meaning behind the different elements of the parable. Going back up, to the top. In verse 9, we once again come to the man who planted the vineyard. This man is symbolic of God. God is the owner of the vineyard. He owns it all. Now, the vineyard is a picture of the house of Israel, And we know that the owner is symbolic of God and that the vineyard is a picture of the house of Israel based upon what scripture tells us. Remember, we always want to use scripture to interpret scripture. And so I want to draw your attention to Isaiah chapter 5. If you want, you can churn there. Um, I turned right to it because I have my ribbon there. But uh, Isaiah chapter 5, Old Testament, first Old Testament uh, major prophet. Uh, if you're you know, turning back, you need to go through all the minor prophets, all of the major prophets. The very first one is Isaiah. If you start to get into the Song of Solomon and Proverbs and stuff like that, you went too far, okay? Isaiah chapter 5. Okay? There, here in the book of Isaiah, we have a very similar description of the situation before us here in Luke chapter 20. Follow along in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. It says, now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst, just like the one that Jesus spoke of. Also, he made a wine press in it, just like Jesus spoke of. He expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, it shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. Verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. And so we see the parallels between Isaiah chapter 5 and the parable here in Luke chapter 20. And verse 7 of Isaiah 5 says quite clearly, that the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And so we know that the man who planted the vineyard is the Lord. And we know that the vineyard speaks of the house of Israel. And of this, uh, this of course, is exactly how Psalm 80, verse 8, describes the work God has done through Israel, how God brought a vine out of Egypt and cast out the nations and planted it. Also, in verse 9, we have the vine dressers. Now, the vine dressers represent the religious leaders that were given the responsibility of caring for the house of Israel. The immediate context helps lead us to this understanding, seeing as how Jesus shared this parable right after the religious leaders questioned Jesus about his authority. And if there is any doubt as to this interpretation, the end of our text confirms the identity of the vine dressers. For in verse 19, we read of how the religious leaders, the chief priests and the elders, the scribes, they knew that Jesus spoke this parable against them. And so, the fact that the religious leaders clearly understood themselves to be the vine dressers lets us know that this is so. What about the servants in verses 10 through 12? Who did they represent? Well, the servants are representative of the prophets that God sent to the house of Israel. Again, we know this because of what Scripture confirms to us. Time and time again, throughout the scriptures, the house of Israel repeatedly rejected the prophets, the messengers that God sent to her, not only rejecting them and not listening to them, but beating them, stoning them, and even killing them. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Stephen also, in the book of Acts, testified against the house of Israel and their treatment of God's prophets, stating, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. And so it's very clear to see that the servants are pictures Of God's prophets sent to the house of Israel. Interestingly enough, the very last prophet God sent prior to Jesus was none other than John the Baptist, and true to form, he too was killed by the religious leaders of the house of Israel. Well, that leaves us with the one and only beloved son in verses 13 through 15. And I'm sure you've figured out who that is by now. We know this is, of course, speaking of God's one and only beloved son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was sent to the house of Israel to lead them in bearing fruit worthy of repentance. But the religi- religious leaders would have nothing to do with Jesus. Instead of receiving him as one sent by the father, they instead plotted out ways to kill him and in hopes to keep whatever perceived power they had. The fact that the vine dressers cast out the beloved son and killed him in the parable was a foreshadowing of what they would do with Jesus. For Jesus would be rejected by the religious leaders. He would be cast outside the city walls and there he would be crucified for the sins of all humanity. Hebrews chapter 13 verses 11 through 13 tells us that just as the sacrifices whose blood atones for sin were carried outside the camp, Jesus too that he might sanctify all people by his blood, suffered outside the gate, rejected by his own people, but placed outside the camp for all of us to have access to. This parable was foreshadowing what was about to take place in just a few days' time. When the religious leaders would reject Jesus and have him crucified crucified, excuse me, upon the cross of Calvary. And so as we look at this parable, we begin to understand what the meaning of it was. We come to find that Jesus, really what He's doing is He's revealing the answer to the question regarding His authority. That question that they just asked prior to this that we covered last week. Here Jesus reveals through this parable that his authority comes from heaven. It comes from his Father. As the Son of God, all authority has been given to Jesus Christ. And so he answers this question, but he answers it through a parable to only those who would have discerning ears and pay attention to what he was saying. The end of verse 15 leaves us with a question regarding what the owner of the vineyard will do to the vine dressers. And understanding the identity of these characters, we understand what the question is really asking, and that it's a very serious question. What will God do to the religious leaders for the way in which they treated his prophets and ultimately how they treated his only begotten son, killing him to try and secure their own power? That's the question, right? Let's read the response to the parable. And in so doing, I think we'll come to the proper understanding of the application of this parable. Read with me verses 16, and we'll read verse 19 as well, just to see the responses to this parable. Verse 16 says, He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, Certainly not. Verse 19 says, And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the uh, people. For they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Jesus asked the question at the end of verse 15, and then he provides the answer to his own question in the beginning of verse 16. In response to the question of what the owner of the vineyard will do, Jesus stated he will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Others, okay, we are here introduced to a new element of the parable. Who are these others that God will lease his vineyard to? Well, as we mentioned, the vineyard represented the house of Israel, but not just the people or the place, but the special bond that God had towards the house of Israel, the special relationship he shared with them, how he was their God, and they were his people. The house of Israel had failed to fulfill the purpose for which God had established them as a special people unto the Lord. They failed to bring forth the fruit that God was desiring the nation to produce. And so what will he do? He will take away the privileges, the opportunities. He will give them to others. Specifically, I believe Jesus is speaking about the Gentiles and the church. You see, the others, they represent you and me. Okay? We are part of the church. Okay? If you're a believer this morning, you've been added to the church, okay? and you are part of that group of others. God is looking for us to render to him the fruits that the house of Israel failed to produce. And so if we look at just the application for us, it's, it's really simple. We don't want to make the same mistakes that the nation of Israel made. Okay? The nation of Israel was expected to bear fruit for the Lord, to be faithful stewards of his vineyard. If we want to continue to experience the privileged positions of stewards of God's vineyard, his special relationship with us, then we need to make sure that we remain connected to him and we bear the kind of fruit that he's expecting from us. We need to receive Jesus Christ and we need to make sure that we abide in him and in so doing bear much fruit. Because unless we abide in Christ, we have no possible way to produce the kind of fruit that God is seeking after. Jesus tells us so in John chapter 15, verse 5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. You see, in and of ourselves, we can do nothing. But as we stick close to Jesus and we abide in Him, He will work in us and bear much fruit through us. You see, it isn't a matter of us trying our hardest to bear fruit. Our responsibility is to simply abide in Him and let Him cultivate the kind of fruit that He's desiring in us and through us. Looking back on our text, when Jesus spoke of giving the vineyard to others, the religious leaders, they responded in verse 16, certainly not. Or your translation, it may read, God forbid, or may it never be, okay, depending on which translation you're reading from. The idea of God's favored position being given to another was preposterous in the eyes of the Jews. They couldn't even fathom such an absurdity, That God would turn to the Gentiles and offer them the same kind of affection and love and compassion that he did to them was something they considered impossible. But that's exactly what he did. Through Jesus Christ, the veil was torn and access to God was made available to any and to all who would come to him by faith, whether Jew or Gentile. But instead of submitting to the authority of Jesus Christ and receiving the Son, the religious leaders rejected Jesus, and they sought to lay hands on Him, according to verse 19. They knew that Jesus had spoken this parable against them, and instead of humbling themselves and repenting of their sin and their unfaithfulness, they willfully remained in their rebellion and their sin, and they continued to plot against Jesus and to look for opportunities to kill Him, just as Jesus explained they would in the parable. It is incredible to consider how blind they were to their own sinful actions. Jesus said this is exactly what's going to happen, foretelling what's going to happen in just a few days. And they're like, no way, that's not going to happen. You know what we're going to do? We're going to plot to kill him. Do you not see how you're fulfilling this very parable? The religious leaders, they had a choice to make whether to receive Christ or to reject Christ. And we too have the same choice today. We can either receive Christ or we can reject Him. But let me make it very clear to you that there is no middle ground. To not receive Him is to reject Him. For these religious leaders who would not receive Christ, their Only other alternative was to reject Him. And the same is true for us. There is no middle ground. You either have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or you have not. You have rejected Him, just as these religious leaders did. Well, let's quickly take a look at our second major section of our text. We started by looking at the parable concerning the authority of Christ. Now let's look at the prophecy concerning the authority of Christ, beginning with the giving of the prophecy it's in verse 17 jesus is speaking he says then he looked at them and said what then is this that is written the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone in response to the jews inability to believe that god would indeed churn from israel and offer the same kind of privilege and relationship they enjoyed to gentiles Jesus quoted an Old Testament prophecy from the book of Psalms. Jesus alludes to this prophecy as support for the idea that God would indeed open a new way for people to come to him and experience the kind of divine favor and relationship the Jews once had available to them. The quote comes from Psalm 118, and Psalm 118 is a psalm that is rich with messianic ties. It is the psalm that the people were crying out, in fact, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem during his triumphal entry, just two days prior to this. When the people cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they were quoting from Psalm 118, verse 26. But here Jesus quotes from verse 22, which reads, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now the stone mentioned here in Psalm 118 represents for us Jesus Christ. The builders are representative of the religious leaders. The rejection of the stone speaks of the crucifixion of Christ and him becoming the chief cornerstone, I believe, speaks of the resurrection of Christ and the victory that he won. How do we know all this? Again, because the scriptures tell us. It's in the book of Acts. There we read of how Peter and John are seen in the temple area, and they are preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the religious leaders. There in Acts chapter 4, we read the following in verses 7 through 12. It says, and when they, referring to the religious leaders, had sent them, referring to Peter and John, uh, when they had set them in the midst of, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he's been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so clearly we see that Jesus is in fact the stone. The religious leaders are the builders, okay? And their rejection of him speaks of the crucifixion of Christ. The fact that he has become the cornerstone speaks of the resurrection and the victory that Christ obtained in becoming the savior of the world. The chief cornerstone, you guys, is considered the most important stone of a building. The cornerstone of a large structure, um, it, uh, the cornerstone of a large structure gives it a reliable and firm foundation leading to the cohesion and the stability of the whole building. Jesus is described as a stumbling block to Israel. First 1 Corinthians 1.23 states, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block. But to the church, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He is the most important piece to the church that God is building. He is the cornerstone. You see, without him, without his crucifixion, without his resurrection, there would be no church. We would have no foundation to build upon. We have had, would have no stability, no cohesion that would bring us together. Ephesians chapter 2 affirms, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, in Matthew's parallel account, okay, Jesus is recorded as saying something else after quoting from some Psalm 118, referring to the stone being rejected and becoming the chief cornerstone. This is what he adds. He says, Jesus said in Matthew 21, 43, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Because the religious leaders rejected the chief cornerstone, Jesus declares that the kingdom of God will be taken from them and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. The word nation does not mean another country, okay? If you look up and do a word study, it's not referring to another country, but it's referring to another people group namely the church that was about to be birthed and eventually filled with both Jews and Gentiles. And we know this because of Scripture, because of what Peter writes in his first epistle, stating, Therefore it is also contained in the Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, same word, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We, you and I, the church, are that new nation that God has given his kingdom to, and we must be careful not to fall into the same temptation and practice of those before us. God expects us to receive Jesus, to believe upon him and his work upon the cross and his victory over the grave. We must make Jesus Christ the cornerstone of our lives, that we would build everything based upon him and his victory over the grave. Now, We've looked at the giving of the prophecy. Now let's look at the response to the prophecy in verse 18, and we'll wrap this all up. In verse 18, it says, Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now this verse has caused some people to scratch their head a little bit and wonder as to what exactly Jesus meant here, but I believe it's very simple to understand. Let me try to explain. The stone is the same, you guys. The stone is still speaking about Jesus Christ. Whoever falls on Jesus Christ will be broken. Now, we normally would think of something that's broken as a bad thing, right? Nobody wants to break something that's valuable to them, right? However, in God's kingdom, brokenness is not only good, it is essential, we must fall upon Christ in humility and allow Him to break us of our pride, of our arrogance, of our own self-will and our own stubbornness, that we may be completely submitted to Him and His will. Psalm 51:17 says, "The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise." Whoever does not choose to fall on Christ and be broken before him will have Christ fall upon them, crushing them, as described in the ESV and the NIV, if you're reading from those translations. You see, Jesus is not only described as a stumbling stone to the Jews and the chief cornerstone for the church, but he's also described as a crushing stone through the prophet Daniel. It's in Daniel chapter 2, we read in verses 34 and 35, where it speaks of a prophecy concerning the end of the age when a stone not cut with hands will be used to crush the Gentile kingdoms and establish God's glorious kingdom. That crushing stone It represents the kingdom Jesus will establish when he returns to this earth and he rules and reigns upon it. And so we are offered a choice of brokenness. You see, we can either fall upon Jesus and we can be broken by him of our pride and of our sinfulness, which isn't always pleasant, but it is necessary, or for those that don't want to submit to Jesus and fall upon Him, He will ultimately fall upon them, crushing them, and grinding them to powder and judgment. And so the choice is ours to make. We can either be broken before Him or crushed by Him. My suggestion to you is that you fall upon him in brokenness, rather than having him fall upon you and crush you. You know, just wrapping this whole entire thing up, looking at the parable, looking at this prophecy, in conclusion, the entire text today really is dealing with the authority of Christ. We looked at a parable concerning the authority of Christ. We looked at a prophecy concerning the authority of Christ. And with all this talk about authority, I think the obvious overarching application for us all has to do with our own decision to yield and submit to the authority of Christ. We must ask ourselves, very simply, have we given Jesus all authority in our own lives? Have we relinquished all authority to Jesus? Have we laid down our own selfish desires and are we fully and completely submitted to Him? Are we open to however God wants to work in us and through us? Are we open to whatever He desires, wherever He would send us? That is my hope for us. My hope for us is that we would be able to say without reservation, God I am yours. Have your way in me. And we will be completely submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. And as we do so, the ushers, the worship team, they're going to come up. They're going to prepare for our time of communion. But let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this portion of Scripture as we look at your authority. As the Son of God... Jesus, you have been given all authority on heaven and, uh, uh, in heaven above and earth below, Lord. There is nothing that is beyond you, nothing that is uh, outside of your realm of authority. And so, Lord, it would be silly for us to try and hold on to something, Lord, to hold on to any sense of power or control we may think we have. Lord, I pray that we would willingly surrender and submit our all to you, that you would be our cornerstone of our lives, Lord. That our lives would be built upon you in the truth of your victory upon the cross and your victory over the grave, Lord, the resurrection, Lord, that in that act, Lord, in that we would find all of our identity, we would find all of our our everything. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to build upon us, Lord, as we've have you as our foundation, Lord. That you'd continue to build us up, that you'd continue to work in us the fruit, the desire that you desire to see in and through us. And Lord, we know that that will only take place as we continue to abide in you. And so, Lord, I pray, give us a heart that desires you. Give us a heart that desires to be close to you, to be completely yielded and surrendered to you, and just allowing you and your Spirit to work in our hearts and lives. Lord, we give you just afresh and anew our hearts and our lives this morning, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.